Good morning. My name is Renee Sardina, and the lesson for today is in 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 7. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Laam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. I want to thank Glenna and our choir for leading us in worship this morning. And I'm just thankful for the history of choir at this church. I mean, honestly, the history goes back before Hope Evangelical Free Church. God's expression of worship when angels gather together and announce Jesus is a choir. The gathered congregation is functioning as a choir when it sings regularly every Sunday morning. So I want to encourage that tradition, which can be lost in our particular day, and even invite you, young and old, to participate in that. There's no better way for us to raise up the next generation to know how to sing and why we sing and to bless the congregation than participating in a choir. So thanks to Glenna and those who participated, and I'm thankful for this ministry year of a choir. This is a very difficult text. To be honest with you, it's offensive. On any modern year, this is an offensive text. There's no way around it. You will feel offended by verse 3 that Renee just read. It's impossible. Yet we know full and well that God's Word is inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's what God says about His Word. We know that. We believe that. So when we come to a difficult text, we have to look a little closer and wrestle with what this text is trying to teach us. In fact, this is a long chapter, and I only asked Renee to read the, verse, the first seven verses. There, there are several more, and several other things we could have discussed in this text. Like, for example, in verses 11 and verse 35, Verses we didn't even read publicly this morning, where God says he has regret. What that even teaches us about God and his all-knowing, and the way really he accommodates himself to us and speaks in language we can understand. Or even probably one of the larger themes of the text that we've already seen earlier is Saul's failure to obey God. We could have talked about that. It's not just It's not just that we worship, it's how we worship that matters. That would have been a beautiful theme to flesh out from this text and declare to us this morning. 
But I just couldn't get past verse 3 on our modern ears and human ears and, and not respond to it and, and have us look a little closer. So I'm going to pray and ask God to minister through his word this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask you to be the one who speaks to us this morning. And Lord, we look at you and your text even when it is difficult and we don't understand why you always do the things you do. So help us to understand a bit more about who you are and in the process, who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every one of us is born with a fair instinct. I can't imagine a set of siblings who have not tasted that over and over again. Arguing over which cookie is bigger or which piece of cake they get to choose. Every one of us is born with that. That's not fair. How many times have you said that in your nine years or 90 years? How many times have you thought it's not fair? It's not right. Well, who determines fairness? The two siblings based upon the gram of chocolate chip, number of grams of chocolate chip cookie weighs? Or the size of cake by kind of eyeing it? Or who gets to sit in the front seat of the car when there's three of you and neither of you kids are the driver? Or why one couple has numerous children and another couple has zero? Or one person lives well into their 80s with minimal pain and suffering and others get cancer in their 20s or 30s? That gets a little bit more serious than cookies and cake. But who defines fair? Do you get to define it? Does the U.S. government get to define that? Does some United Nations define what is fair? Well, this text doesn't seem fair. Specifically, that shocking statement in verse 3, when God commands Saul and his people Israel to strike down the Amalekites. Look at verse 3. Now go... And strike Amalek and devote to destruction, note that phrase, I'll get back to it, devote to destruction all that they have. He's not just talking about property. He says, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Texts like this have been used to inappropriately support the Crusades or the slaughter and enslavement of particular nation groups, all of which are bad readings of this text. But we have to ask, what's the right reading? What's this text trying to say? <laughs> that statement, this verse 3, is a problem in our modern culture for sure. Let me, let me give you a couple examples. The atheist Richard Dawkins, in his book, the God delusion calls the God of the Old Testament a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Or the journalist Christopher Hitchens complains that the Old Testament contains a warrant for indiscriminate massacre. Both of them would point to verse 3 as proof of that. But this, this text, if we're going to look closely enough, this text is also a problem for our human pride. 
We can't even see the ways in which we claim the rights and authorities that belong to God as our own. So one purpose of a text like this is to teach us about us. It becomes a bit of a mirror so we can see, hey, that's not fair. We can listen to our own cry out for fairness. But a certain purpose of a text like this is to teach us about God. It's going to teach us something. And likely something that our human pride will not sit comfortably with. So this becomes a wonderful test case for how we relate and understand the Word of God. It it sounds great to trust in the Word of God when it says what you want it to say. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Say it, read it, preach it. Even though I walk through the shadow of death, read it, read it, love it, give it to me, put it on my wall, give it a, put, it, put it on a plaque. But then when it says something like, kill them all, man and woman, child and infant, where's that on our plaques? Or youth group t-shirts. This difficult passage gives us a wonderful opportunity to see how every portion of God's Word, even the hard parts, extend into today's world and our personal lives in order to pastor us to know and love God. Let's start with the context. God orders Saul and Israel to act as God's agent of judgment. That's what this is. This is, this is Israel being assigned to do what God is asking them to do. This is not Saul making his decision to do this. This isn't just his own abuse. What he will abuse, actually, is not the Amalekites. He was commanded to do that. What he will abuse is God's commands himself. But we're not even going to get to that part. They are acting as God's agent of judgment, reflecting what God had promised long before. The Amalekites had long been an enemy of Israel and an enemy of God. Listen to a couple texts. Exodus 17, 14. How would you like this to be said about you and your family? God says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Man, when God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. So he said that in Exodus 17, 14. I will utterly blot out. He doesn't even just say, I will blot them out. I will utterly blot out. The memory of Amalek from under heaven. Or Numbers 24.20. Amalek was the first among the nation, but its end is utter destruction. God did not lie in Exodus or Numbers, because by the time you get to 1 Samuel 15, even their donkeys are goners. Like everything. Now we could, we could talk about the Amalekites and say they are horrific. Horrific. Imagine what some of the stories coming out of Ukraine in relationship to Russia and what some of the Russian soldiers have done to civilians and children, women and girls. Like imagine that multiplied by a hundred and maybe at least you understand a little bit of the sinful nature of the Amalekites, but that doesn't take away the pinch. That doesn't answer it. Because I'm sure those infants... Little six-month-old had nothing to do with those things, even if their parents had. The act of destroying everything 
is a practice of dedicating the enemy and his goods to God. Right? This, is, this is an offering. So we need to understand a little bit of not just what is happening, but how. That's what that phrase in verse 3, devote to destruction, remember I mentioned that to you? That's an important phrase. That's a technical phrase. They are literally being made a burnt offering. If you would take a lamb or a pigeon and offer a burnt offering to God, now God is actually taking an entire people group and making them a burnt offering. When Saul disobeys this order, by the way, that's exactly what he's doing. He is taking an offering that belongs to God and claiming some of it for himself. You actually saw at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, that's what the priests were doing. Eli's sons were doing that. They were taking, and the, and the people offering the sacrifice, wait, 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 wait. That, that belongs to God. And they were saying, we're going to take what we want to take, and God ended them. Saul's doing the same thing. This was, in many ways, this battle between God and his people and the Amalekites, it was not only God's act of judgment, it was a holy war, a holy way of God versus evil and his opponents. Israel was simply the tool. This is an act of divine vengeance, the creator purging evil from his creation. And all of that can make fine sense to you, but... The moment you see that phrase, maybe especially the phrase, child and infant, it doesn't seem fair. There's no way that sits comfortably. And I'm not going to try to convince you that it should. I think it's hard to hear. So how can we handle the shock of this passage in order to see what it wants us to know? Two things. First, Here's, here's how we have to even approach this. We must begin with what Scripture says elsewhere about God. We are always interpreting every part of the Bible in light of the whole. We have to. That is a significant rule of interpretation. So here's what we know about God. Let me read some of God's traits. And all of these need to be put into the oven for this meal. 1 John 4, 8 tells us explicitly, God is love. And if you don't know God, then you don't know that he is love. 1 John 4, 8. Here, here's another, 1 John 1, 5. God is without darkness and evil. The text says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There's not a shadowy corner or a, or a dark past or an evil kind of thread. There's literally all light. So again, notice what those two things are saying. Whatever God is doing, it is a manifestation of love and light. As hard as that is for us to reconcile, that's what God's word would elsewhere. And like a choir singing with all their parts, one part might sing this bass that feels like hate and unfairness, but the rest is declaring light and love. And it's a beautiful symphony of truths that we have to know. Here's another, God is patient. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How about the truth Psalm 18 says? God is perfect. His way is perfect, Psalm 18, 30. Everything he does is perfect. So the moment we'd want to ask, was that the right move, God? Like, teaching on one of my sons 
driver's ed right now. Whoa, that was a sharp turn. Hope the tires are good. I wouldn't go home to his mother and say his driving was perfect. But when God is perfect, then we know whatever maneuver he makes is, guess what? It's perfect. So again, we have to ask the question, help me, God, because my ruler doesn't line those things up. On my level, that looks off. So give me a level to understand. Verse 3 in 1 Samuel 15. Two more traits of God that are significant for this. God is just. Psalm 56, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And even this one, which seems counter to our text, Psalm 116.5, God is compassionate. The text says this, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. So with those lenses, we can then make clear what this text is not saying about God. Let me give you three. God cannot be acting in a way that is sinful. Hard to grasp, but go with that. God cannot be acting in a way that is sinful, selfish, or cruel. I'll be careful, because if you want to compare him to what rights and privileges you have, if you're thinking human rights, be careful. God is God. Here's the second thing this text is not saying about God. God cannot be acting in a way that is inflicting undeserved pain or suffering. Undeserved is the key word. God is not saying that any human can enact divine vengeance on another human. That right belongs to God alone. Remember what the psalmist taught us. God is the judge. No other nation, no other people group can claim that. So what might this story be teaching the church to see and understand? Well, let me give you four thoughts. Remember, be ready. This isn't just a problem to be fixed. This is a lens to see who God is properly, but also, here we go, to see who we are. First is this, our lives are not our own. The created has no rights before the creator. That, that is not the way we are catechized to think as we live in this culture. We are in one of the most right-seeking and right-claiming nations in the history of the world. And yet the church will tell you, you have no rights before God. Again, the good news is all the things we said about God a few minutes ago. He is love. He is without darkness. He is patient. He is perfect. He is just. He is compassionate and merciful. But before him, you have no rights. You can make no claims. I worry we will never truly submit to this truth. Maybe with extreme loss, when our hands are completely empty. Maybe moments before death. When everything is slipping away, maybe then we embrace our finitude and our createdness just for a minute, but probably most of the life, our lives, we've got our fists clenched, fighting for power and control over our creator. Fair is not a fair category for the God-human relationship. 
Plain and simple. Fair is an understandable category between two siblings wanting to pick cookies. Fair is a beautiful category trying to figure out who gets the front seat this time. Fair is not a fair category for the God-human relationship. It just isn't. It's apples to oranges. But here's a biblical rule of thumb. Everything God does, everything he does, gives him the greatest glory and gives us the greatest good. And we know that because God is love. God is light. God is patient and kind. God is perfect in all that he does. He is just and pursues righteousness. And he is compassionate and merciful. And yet, and yet, when life doesn't seem fair, we have to know that everything God is doing, everything over which he controls, that he saw well in advance and orchestrates to perfection, is done that he may receive the greatest glory and we may receive the greatest good. And now here, here we go. That's where our pride immediately wants to clench the fist and say, I'm not comfortable with that. And then you just have to hear other passages where God says, where were you when I set the planets in their place? And when does the clay say to the potter, I don't like that little angle? Notice, this text is not just an apologetic thing with which we must wrestle. This text is looking into your human heart and saying, you see that pride? Drop it. You do not belong to yourself. Your life is not your own. Some of you will have 90 years and until the very end have great health. Some of you won't make it to 30 or 40. There's no fair. There's no even. Our lives are not our own. The created has no rights for the creator. Here's the second truth that this story is teaching the church to see and understand. God's glory, that's his holiness, his perfection, requires him to deal with humanity's sin. Well, this is where the church can seem so offensive to the world. Because literally, you want to know our message of good news? That you're going to walk up to say somebody at a Christmas party this year? Hey, guess what? You're a total sinner. There is nothing good in you. God is light and you and I are darkness. You want some more wassail? We have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view on sin and certainly too low a view on God's glory. And if you didn't have too high a view of self and too low a view of sin and God's glory, then you would read verse 3 and it wouldn't even be a speed bump. Like somebody who's filing wood down to make it smooth and they don't even have to look at it, right? They just feel with their hand and they feel a little ridge and they know they got to file some more. If we were driving down the freeway of 1 Samuel and we get to verse 3, it's like, don't even feel the bump. God's the creator. I'm the created. There is nothing good in me. There is nothing I deserve. He doesn't have to give me a heartbeat right now. He doesn't owe me a dime. But the moment we claim any of that for ourselves, bloop, verse 3 is a speed bump. I don't like that text. I bet you don't, human. Because you probably and I 
have too high a view of self. We quantify sin based upon, well, I haven't killed anybody this year. I've cheated on my spouse. I've loved my kids. What more do I want? God demands holiness. And none of us can make that. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. That doesn't just include the Amalekites. That includes all of us. Isaiah 26, 21, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That probably includes the state line areas. Psalm 7, 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Think about that. Thank goodness God is also patient because he feels indignation every day because of we who claim rights that belong to him. There is evil in the world that opposes God and his creation, and it must be dealt with. God's holiness is death to those who oppose him, but it brings life to those who belong to him. You you can't have one without the other. If you want the grace that God gives and the life that he shares, which meets his holiness, then you also need the fact that he will also put down every evil. And you want that for others. You want that for a dictator slaughtering people. You want that for a murderer walking the streets. But do you want it for your own human heart? We likely have a moral system that defines fairness in relation to how we want to be treated and not how God wants to be treated. So you and I may actually impose on God what we think is fair based upon what looks good for us and not how God wants to define it and what is good for him. That's why the church must say to the world, but to its own people, hell is real. There's a real hell. There's a real punishment for sin. But please hear me. When I say that, I'm not just telling you the bad news. I'm giving the context for the good news. But there's also a heaven and a new creation. There's a redeemer God. That's the third thing we can learn. God's glory and holiness demand either death for us or the death of Jesus in our place. Those are the only two options. What makes the gospel good news is that it tells how amazing God's gift of Jesus is for us all. And please hear that. That's for men and women, child and infant. Listen to some text. John 3.36 has always struck me. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Don't just stop there with that statement. Whoever does not, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there's the two options. That's the way to define every human existing right now. Either the wrath of God is resting upon them, waiting to be enacted, or the wrath of God has been given to Jesus in their place. There's wrath one way or another, because God is holy. The question is, who takes the wrath? Do you take the wrath, or does Jesus? Those are the two options. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, does that not make free sound a whole bit different? Doesn't the word gift mean something? In the end, all of us are a sacrifice to God. Remember that phrase in verse 3 I mentioned, devote, devotion to destruction? That's literally the language of offering. Every one of us is an offering to God's holiness. You are either an offering to appease the wrath of God, or you are an offering of blessing. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says this, the very first verse after spending 11 chapters defining the gospel, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice the alternative. You actually don't get to choose if you're going to be a sacrifice. You are a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, or you are a living sacrifice by the mercy of God. That is an act of worship. Which sacrifice would you like to be? All creatures in God's creation, are designed for the satisfaction of his glory. Man, again, if we weren't stained by sin, if we saw God in his fullness, this wouldn't even be a speed bump. But I can imagine even saying those words, certainly out in the world, but maybe even in the church, you are literally made to satisfy God. And that can just sound so offensive because you and I hear that and say, I want some satisfaction. That's why... God allows these stories to be part of our regular reading in an expository sermon series so we can get a glimpse, not just of who he is, which is of the utmost importance, but we can get a little bit of a mirror in our own soul. Last thing, God, the last thing this text teaches, God assigns his people to serve as his agents, which in the new covenant is primarily spiritual in nature. God's people in the new covenant do not live under a theocracy, in relation to other kingdoms like Israel did in the Old Covenant, for the kingdom of God now exists among all the nations. Praise be to God. So if in the Old Testament it was a physical act of justice and judgment and divine vengeance and holy war, in the New Testament it's a spiritual one. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and the cosmic forces over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or 1 Corinthians 6, which tells us not only will the saints one day judge the world, that'll be in the beginning of the new creation, but it also says we'll judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. So what is this story teaching us? The four things I said. Our lives are not our own. The created has no rights before the creator. God's glory requires him to deal with humanity's sin. God's glory and holiness demand either death for us or the death of Jesus in our place. There's the gospel. And last, God assigns his people, you and me, to serve as his agents, now in a spiritual way of declaring God's goodness, but also warning of God's holiness, which will even give us a significant role 
at the start of the new creation. So what is this text doing here? This offensive text on modern ears. Well, it wants you to see the fullness of God's glory. If you had a small view of God, it just got inflated by verse 3. But if you had an inflated view of self, it just got punctured. And all of that is so through what might look like a text that's a problem is actually a pastoral text to remind you that your God is worthy of praise and worship and obedience he defines what is good, right, and true. And we need to sometimes let Scripture teach us and sometimes rebuke and correct for a life of righteousness. And I don't know where this text took you this morning. But it does ask you, will you submit to the God of the Bible or will you submit to a God of your own making? One who is less the creator, the God of your own making, will likely be less the creator, the sovereign, holy, glorious God above all things, and more likely a God of your own creation. Well, we know which God the Bible presents. The question is, which one will you believe in? And if we'd read more of the text, we would have seen Saul wanted a God that served his needs. Let's not make the same mistake as Saul. Let's pray. Father, you are so big that we don't even have mental capacity to grasp how high you are, how above all things you are. And we know of texts that declare that the heavens are higher than the earth, or that your ways are higher than our ways, and yet this text still, like a speed bump, reveals how our path of life and righteousness and meaning and what is good and right is not level. And help us to see how big you are. Help our kids, even if they don't understand all the things about which we spoke, help them to see that God is bigger than what they might have thought before. But Father, in light of the gift of Christ, help us to not be afraid to see that we are more sinful than we even realize. And to know that the God who is love and gracious and merciful and patient and perfect has taken an evaluation of our condition and has willingly said, I will die in your place. How can we not sing, it is well with my soul? How can we not declare your goodness, even if on the playing field of life it doesn't always seem fair? Because what was not fair was that God would die for the sin of his people. That the king would serve his own kingdom. Help us to grasp that even maybe especially in a text that might be hard to read in modern ears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.